Before I begin, I would like to ask the Lord's assistance one more time. So let's lift our hearts up to the Lord. Our Holy Father, we now ask that the words that I speak represent your words, your thoughts, your intents. May the gospel be made clear. May Christ be lifted up and may sinners be saved. And may your people be blessed and may they be encouraged. Give them hope, Father, to believe in what you have promised. Allow us to rest in your work. Allow our hearts, Father, by being precious to us, that we might turn from this wicked world and that we might have our souls rest upon our Christ. We all know that Christ will accomplish these things for us. But Father, we are flesh and we are weak. Help our unbelief. Give us, Father, the strength of your spirit to love you, to love your holiness, to love your kindness and grace to us, to endure unto the end. We pray these things in our Lord's name. Amen. This is the first time in all of my life that I've preached uh, through the book of the, of the Apocalypse. It is a fearful thing for me. I've not done it before. And I find myself constantly saying to myself, uh, this is what I think. This is my idea. This is my opinion. But there are certain things within the book that are clear. And I'll try to relate that to you. This is the word of the Lord. And when it is my opinion, I'll tell you. But what we have here in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is Christ giving us hope, giving us the ability to endure unto the end. This is a second part of the message on Revelation chapter 11 concerning the witnesses that will be present uh, during the time from the ascension to the coming of Christ again. Now, we've already looked at three, or shall we say two, of the visions out of seven. The first one being the church on the earth, where we saw the Lord walking among the candlesticks. We saw a tremendous vision of Christ. And then the church has received those letters. The second vision, we saw Christ standing before the throne of God, receiving the seven seals on the scroll. The third vision is from the perspective of those that dwell on the earth. So we see the first time, the church on earth. The second vision, God on his throne. And now the third vision, we have the trumpets of God warning the people and giving them an understanding of what God is going to do. And among this last second to the last trumpet we're in the trumpet number six right now we've been given a pause from the trumpet blowing to see what is going on on the earth and among the people of the earth among and they're described like this those that dwell upon the earth and so when you see the phrase those that dwell upon the earth you're looking from the viewpoint of the unbeliever but now they're looking at the witnesses that they see Two witnesses. And so from this pause, we're going to wrap up what we know about the witnesses. We saw last week in the first uh, two verses of this chapter how John was told to take a measuring rod and measure the temple. And we learned this, that God is protecting his church. He has put that plumb line. What a tremendous lesson we had this morning in the study hour 
uh, looking at the prophecy of Zechariah, where the plumb line was laid out. And remember this, if you've ever done any construction at all, it is a very simple thing to hold a string from your hand and have a weight at the bottom. And that simple string is perfectly perpendicular to the plane of the earth. It points right to the center of the earth. And that line is perfectly straight up and down from all directions. It's a perfect illustration of what God wants and expects from us. And that he says, I will measure my people, my church, and I'm going to protect them according to my plan. However, in the following verses in chapter 11, we immediately see these two witnesses having war waged against them. And that we are told that we are going to be conquered and that the church will then eventually be killed. And our bodies lie, will lie in the street and we will not be able to rise up again until three and a half days in which God will breathe life back into his church and they'll stand on their feet again. So that is what we're looking at today. That is what we're looking at today. The Lord is going to raise up his church on that last day. Now, this is my opinion. I believe in the very last days before the Lord comes back that this world, this dark kingdom, is going to come against the church in such a way that we will be completely annihilated from the world from their viewpoint. From their viewpoint. They will see a church that has been defeated, a church that has been killed, and they won't be sorry about it. They're going to be happy about it. We'll get into that a little bit later. However, throughout all the centuries, whether it be before the Christ came the first time or after he was crucified for us and raised from the dead, even from that time to this time, history has shown us that the church has endured, has endured all the persecutions. Now, there have been times in which it looked like the church was completely wiped out in a certain region, in a certain place. But it has never died. It has come back repeatedly over and over again. So let me go and back and give you a brief review of some things, and I promise it'll be brief this time, that we'll just make sure we catch up and get our minds back where we were last week. In verses 4, 5, and 6, we'll, we'll look at these together again. Verses 4, 5, and 6. These are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, then fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is to be. This is how he is doomed to be killed. And the power to shut the sky, uh, to, that rain no more may fall upon the days of their prophesying, and that they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, to tell you that I know exactly what these verses are would be. Uh, would be rather bold of me to say something like that. I'm going to tell you what I think they say, but I will then also tell you what I know what the Word of God promises to us, not only here, but in the passages that we'll also see in the New Testament. Who in the world are these two witnesses? The, I do not believe that these are two individual people. I do not believe that this is Moses and Elijah or Moses and Enoch. Uh, some people believe that. They have this futuristic idea of this book that one day two people will come back and they'll do these things. But what I see here in the first two verses is God saying, my church has been measured by me and I will protect them. And then he continues on to say, these are my witnesses, my two witnesses. And why two? 
Well, there might be a lot of reasons, but the one I think of, the first reason would be this. Out of the mouth of two witnesses shall everything be established. Everything. From the law and from the prophets. All these things will be done, and we have two witnesses here. We know that there are two churches that did not receive rebuke in the first vision, and that they were asked to endure. And that is what we are asked to do. And so we looked at the idea of that where should we look at this from an idealistic point of view, which I do, or should we look at it from a futuristic point of view, like many dispensationalists do, or should we look at it like a praetorist, like all this is in the past? I think that we should take a look at this from an idealistic view, where we learn that there is a hope that God has given us to endure unto the end. We see these passages giving us hope, hope in the light of what is catastrophic, catastrophic. We cannot fight this kingdom of darkness. We cannot win against them. They are going to kill us. However, God is going to preserve us. God is going to breathe life into us. He is our strength. The truth is our strength. That is the bulwark that we will be saved in. We must have the truth come out of our mouths. Remember how the scriptures repeated twice. If anyone would harm these witnesses... It, they must be destroyed by what comes out of their mouth, the fire that comes from their mouth. Remember, Jeremiah was told by the Lord, I will have my words in your mouth, and my words will be a fire, and the world will be the wood. All that we do is done by the power of the Spirit of God using His truth. The truth and the Holy Spirit, those two things, that is how the enemies of God are going to be defeated. Not by calling fire down from heaven like James and John wanted to do with the Samaritans. No, the Lord said to them, you don't know what spirit you're of. You just don't understand. They just went to another village. And I'm telling you that we must be like Zechariah and like Jeremiah and like Elijah and like Moses, because these verses describe those prophets, those prophets, the ones that had the truth, the one that had the knowledge and the heart, like Zechariah. He had the knowledge given to him. Remember, in Zechariah chapter 4, our brother's not there yet, but he's getting there. I can see him chopping at the bits to get to chapter 4 of Zechariah. But these, there, there are two lamp, candlesticks, and on either side there's, there's olive trees. And these olive trees provide oil through pipes to the candlesticks. And these candlesticks light, give light to the world. There is the truth of the gospel, the light of the gospel, the power of the oil that comes from these olive trees, come by having the Holy Spirit indwelling the church of God, providing light and warmth. Now, there is a difference between light and warmth and a fire that consumes. One is controlled and one is not. We need the light and the warmth. We need the truth and the work of the Holy Spirit within us. But if you will if you'll reject the truth, then there is a consuming fire coming. You don't want to knock over the candlestick that has an, un an endless supply of oil. Because if you stand before God and challenge Him, the burning oil will consume you. But if you approach God with a humble heart, you will receive light, and you will receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to live with hope in this present evil world. Amen. Moses was a man that was described to be meek, the meekest man. 
and yet he had the courage to stand before to Pharaoh. Meekness and courage. Elijah was a man that could shut the heavens without rain, and there was a famine, but he depended upon what a widow could give him to survive. And so you see a man with dependence and endurance. You see Jeremiah with tough love, but with compassion. You see Zechariah with the knowledge of the truth and an ever supply of the, of the Spirit of God with heart. These things are the witnesses of this world. They describe his church. Now, you may say to yourself, I'm no Elijah and I'm no Moses. If you have the same oil of the Holy Spirit within you, the time will come when you will require to be a witness. And it is by the Spirit of the Lord, as it says in Zechariah chapter 4. It is not by might or by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord, that the witnesses will provide light and provide warmth. This is what we're at. This is where we left off from last week. Let's go to verses uh, seven, uh, 7 and 8 and, and get ourselves up to speed with that too. 7 and 8. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises out of the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Remember how I told you there is irony in this? The irony is this, is that he tells us right up front, I have measured you, I have protected you. And then he immediately comes and says, but the beast will come out and make war and conquer and kill. He does this first. You are protected, but then you will be killed to encourage us with hope to endure unto the end. And so we can see that these verses give a description of what's going to happen to them. But I pointed out also that there are two cities involved here. We have a great city and we have a holy city. We have a city that's described by two different places, by Egypt, by Sodom, by the place where the Lord was crucified. This great city is the whole world. The whole world that is not God's world, is not God's kingdom. You see, the holy city is that New Jerusalem place where we'd say, where is the kingdom of God? Well, it is, it is within us. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and we are the dwelling place of God. We meet corporately, and the Spirit of God indwells the congregation. We are that city. There is the holy city. There is the great city. It is the kingdom of darkness, and it is the kingdom of God. Those two places. It doesn't have to be a physical location. It's where his people are. God dwells where his people are. And so we see that. Now let's begin with the new material and verses 9 and 10. This is where we left off. Verses 9 and 10. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets uh, have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Well, it doesn't sound like that would make a very good Christmas card, would it, when you give gifts? But I want you to kind of see in this place that there is a very small time referenced here. Have you seen in the past where there's three and a half years, but now it's mentioned three and a half days? It is a common thing in the apocalypse to use these type of numbers to bring to our minds a time period and how to, how to address it and how to look at it. Now I'm going to tell you my opinion. 
I've read some people, I've listened to their sermons, I've tried to understand what they're saying, and I do agree with most of them that this idea of three and a half years has to do with the ascension of Christ all the way to the time that he returns. And you may say, I don't know how that works. Well, let me try to explain it to you the way they have thought. And so this is an opinion. When God created heavens and the earth, he created everything and rested within a period of seven days. We'll just call that a week, a period of seven, a very common number of the apocalypse, a very common number to describe the fullness of God, the seven spirits of God. All that he does seems to be seven. If it's going to be complete, it seems to be the number seven. Now, what is three and a half? Well, it seems to be a half of seven, doesn't it? If you take two halves, you have one whole. It seems to me that if the time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ is three and a half, that the time between the creation of the world and the time of Christ is also three and a half. Daniel tells us that in the middle of the week will the prince come and he will be cut off. Now, we're not going to get into Daniel today, but we can refer to that to the future. But if we look at God's creation, and when I talk about God's creation, I include his providential care of his people. Because when God created everything, he knew what he would do with it. Because the description of our Savior is this. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. From the very beginning to the very end, our salvation is intertwined and interwoven in such a way that it cannot be undone, but it's only accomplished by an almighty God in control of all things. Only he has control of this chaos. He knows, just like if you pour cream into a cup of coffee and you say, you just can't figure out all the ins and outs and the swirlings and this and that. God knows he has his way in the whirlwind. We live in the chaos, but God does not. And therefore, everything that happened from the time of creation to the time of Christ, people looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And the time from the time that Christ ascended to the time that he comes again, we look back to that time. Because that is the time in which we were bought from our sins. That is the time in which our sins were laid on Christ and his righteousness was imputed to us. Our faith in his work, our repentance from sin. That type of turning from sin to embrace our Savior, they, we look to that one place. But now, all the people, from the very beginning to the very end, they look to his coming in judgment. The full seven, the full look at creation, they all come back to this, the Lord will come back and he will set things right. He will judge this world. Righteousness will flow and overcome everything, justice. But the three and a half has to do with the ministry. How long did the Lord minister on this earth? How long was he in the grave? And now we consider ourselves witnesses to God. How long do we endure? How long do we suffer? How long will the witnesses in this world suffer and die for those three and a half years? That's one way to look at it. That's my opinion. But what is not my opinion is that the beast that comes out of the pit the bottomless pit, is going to make war. They will conquer and kill these witnesses. Now, if these witnesses are us, if these witnesses are the church, we can expect persecution. We can expect persecution. And for how long? This says right here, when they have finished their testimony, when we have finished our testimony as a church, we can expect 
that the beast will conquer and kill. Now, I've read last week Matthew 24, 14, and I read these words. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, just because the gospel has been preached doesn't mean the end will come, because Revelation tells us that the end will come when their witnessing has been finished. The gospel will go out to the whole world, but when the witnessing is finished, then will the end come. Now, I want you to consider these dead bodies in the street. Consider them. These witnesses, or shall we say, the church of the living God, having been conquered by this beast, having been slain. And what does that look like? What does it look like to have the church slain? Does it look like they have been completely disowned by the world? Does it look like all the universities say, well, you can't believe that God created the heavens and the earth. You're not going to teach in our universities. We cannot have your commands in the, in the, uh, uh, in the, uh, in the courts of the land, in the, in the Supreme Courts. We're going to remove them. We'll have nothing to do with this kind of a God. When I was in college, my psychology professor on the very first day said that Christianity has been the monkey on the back of humanity. From the beginning. And the sooner we get rid of it, the sooner humanity will progress. And that is what's going to, that's what it's going to look like. To have the church dead in the streets. And these will not be buried. The world is not going to bury the church. The world is not going to have a place where the church can be memorialized. You're not going to be able to go to the graveyard and say, Oh, look at the church. They were good while it lasted. No. They're going to be left out for the world to disdain. Out for the world to say, I don't even want to remember them as heroes. We're going to make sure that the history books represent them as the villains. That they have are ones that have been on our back for history for, for, for generations. For generations. They have been the bad guys. The world will take us and make sure that we are never remembered as those good guys. We will be rewritten as villains plaguing humanity. Even now, the world plots the destruction of the church. Verse number 11. But after three and a half days, we don't know how long that is. All I know is this, that a day is not like a week, and it's not like a month, and it's not like a year. It's a shorter period of time. A shorter period of time from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. And it's going to be a short time there. After three and a half days, the breath of God will, it will enter them, and they stood upon their feet. Now, I, I believe this. This is my opinion. There will be a final battle between the powers of good and evil, the powers of this kingdom, and the powers of the kingdom of darkness. And when that Armageddon happens, the church will be defeated, but not for long. Because when they are dead in the streets, God is going to raise them up. And they will be raised up from the graves to meet God in the sky. That is going to be the last one. But we have seen this dress rehearsal done over and over and over again in history. We have seen where the world has killed Christians. They have defeated the church, but it always came back. It has always pleased the Lord to breathe life back into his people to bring revivals from here and there. Even in this country, we had one of the great awakenings of the world. 
We had men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. We had universities that were started for the glory of God. And they were and they were there preparing men to preach the gospel. What do they do today? Oh my goodness. It's a sad, sad story to tell. The church, when we are done witnessing, will be martyred. I'd like to read something to you. You have read, you've heard this before. But the question that I want this to answer is this. When is this going to happen? When is the end? Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. And you'll recognize it. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? And here's the answer. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When the witness is done, then the end will come. Now, let's go on to the next verse for right now. Verse number 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Now, this, I believe, is what many people refer to as the rapture, but I'll put it this way. It is the rapture. However, when they go up into the air, God immediately takes his people and comes and judges the world. This is not a rapture that is going to be a secret. They all beheld them. They all saw them. They were all amazed. This is not something that's silent. Peter says it's a great movement and the whole world is going to be destroyed. This is not a mystery to the world. This is God coming back and blowing the seventh trumpet. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is going to be seen within the temple of God. Now I want you to consider some things. Before we get into this, does this event sound similar to you? To look at the idea that there are witnesses who are supposed to serve three and a half years and then they are conquered, murdered, and killed, and then raised from the dead. Does that sound at all familiar? Does not reflect the very service of our Lord? Is it not our privilege to walk in the steps of our Savior, to serve Him as He served us, that we should be sent into the world to be a witness to Him, to walk where He walked, to say what He said, to do the things that, is, that pleases the Father, knowing that we will be killed, but also knowing that we shall be raised again. This is not an unfamiliar story, is it? This is to walk in the footsteps of our Savior. This is to say to us, He did it before. He has told us now that we will walk after him. Do you all remember the time when James and John argued about sitting at the right and left hand of Christ? Remember that? They even asked their mother, would you go ask him? And you know what was done there? Let me read it to you. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want, to do, we want you to do something for us and, and what we ask of you. And, they said, and, and he said to them, 
what do you want me to do for you? And he said, and, and they said to them, grant us to sit at your right hand and at your left hand in glory. Well, that's not a small request, is it? That's not a humble request, is it? But the Lord, being so gentle, replied with this, you do not know what you're asking. You are, are you actually able to drink the cup and drink and, 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 and that I, you know, drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism which, uh, with which I am baptized? Are you able to do that? And you know what they said, right? We are able. How easily said. How easily said. However, he says this. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, why would he say that? Because we are to walk where he walked. Not at that time. They will learn. But in time, all of the disciples met with the same fate. But they did so with the Holy Spirit enabling them. We are able, but it was the Spirit of God that enabled them to walk and to be baptized with the very same service that they provide to God. So Revelation chapter 11, verse 13, let's go on. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, do I know exactly what this is? No, not exactly, but I can tell you some things that I do see. The Lord will give full testimony to himself as to what is happening, what is going on. It is the Lord that is doing this. It is the Lord's earthquake. It is the Lord's judgment. And that these seven people that were at 7,000 people were killed, the number 7,000 seems to be quite a complete number, don't you think? A complete number. Reminds me of the judgment against the, of, the, of those that rebelled in the wilderness, the rebellion of Korah. They seem to just swallow up the people. And yet there were those that gave glory to God. Gave glory to God. This is at the time just, private, just previous to the last trumpet. Verse number 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And what is that third woe? It is the coming of Christ. Now, let's take two practical applications from this and see if we can learn something from this. The church has always been persecuted. There are two seeds, the seeds of Christ and the seeds of Adam or the seeds of the devil. You have your devil, your father, the devil. And so there are two kingdoms in this world. And this war goes on from generation to generation. You see, it has been prophesied that the serpent will bite the heel of the Messiah. But the, but the Messiah will crush with his heel the serpent's head. There's always going to be battle. And the church has been confronted by various things from generation to generation. One of the things, I like to talk about four things. And I'll, I'll, I'll move this a little bit faster. There has been paganism fighting the church. There has been false Christianity fighting the church. There's also been a seemingly pseudo-enlightenment that fights the church. And there's also a pseudo-science that fights the church. Now, they come in waves. They come at different times. But this has always been true in every generation. I want you to consider this. At the time when Paul was preaching, Peter was preaching, in the early church... There was a man named Nero. You know who that is, the, the Caesar of Rome. He required to be worshipped as a god. There was also a, a Caesar by the name of Domitian. He required to be worshipped as God. 
There has been in this world a false prophet that requires all men to worship someone who is not Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, Allah and his prophet is Muhammad. Now let me ask you the question, where in the world is Nero? And where is the mission? And where is Muhammad? But I can tell you where Jesus Christ is at. Jesus Christ is on his throne. Yes, yes. Caesars and empires and false religions, they're going to come and they're going to go. But Jesus Christ, the first, now, and the last will remain forever. There has been a battle between true Christianity and false Christianity from generation to generation. There have been times in our history of the world where even owning a Bible was a crime. There has been a time when people tried to translate the scriptures to other languages and they were burned at the stake. False religion has been fighting true religion from generation to generation. Where are those fake Christians who tried to hide the word of God? And then where is the word of God? It is right in this pulpit. It is right in your hearts. It is here when they are gone. Nero's gone. The mission is gone. Those that fight the word, they are gone. What about pseudo-enlightenment? Everyone wants to be enlightened. Everyone wants to say, I know because I have more knowledge than everyone else. It seems like I have no more than all the generations before me. There has been a period in this world between the 1600s and the 1800s where the, real, the world really got bigger than its britches. They really thought they were enlightened. They really thought this. I'm going to give you an example of one man who thought this. A man by the name of Voltaire. Voltaire. He said in 1764 this. The Bible. That is what fools have written. What imbeciles condemn. A commend. What rogues teach to their children. And children are made to learn by heart. That's what the Bible is. He also said this. We are living in the twilight of Christianity. Why? Because he's so enlightened. He has seen its demise. He also wrote in a letter to Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia, this. Christianity is the most ridiculous, most absurd and bloody religion that, I, that has ever infected the world. My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise of extirpating the world of this infamous superstition. This is what Voltaire said. I could read more, but I'm not going to do that. But I am going to say this. In August of 1836, that's only 58 years after Voltaire died, his home in Switzerland was used to house Bibles and religious tracts. Now, I'm going to ask you, where is Voltaire? Where is he? And where is the Word of God? You see, we are going to be beaten down. We are going to be burned. We're going to be demolished. But we'll never be at, at the hands of the devil. Our hearts are safe in Christ. No one can take us out of his hand. Pseudoscience. Pseudoscience. You cannot get a job at a university and believe that God created the heavens and the earth. You're just not going to have that happen. Okay? This world mocks Christianity. There is 
a sad state of affairs when it comes to, shall we say, the reputation or the dignity of a Christian in our society. Let me just, you know, let me just say this about about pseudoscience. About 250 years ago, this nation was very young, and it was at a time in which we had something called the Great Awakening, and I mentioned it before. At that time, there were many universities started here, and I, re you know, I re refer to that too. They were called Ivy League. You may have heard of these Ivy League universities. You've heard of Harvard University, right? That was started in 1636. Do you know who started Harvard University? Calvinists did. In 1701, Yale University was started. Do you know who started Yale University? Calvinists did. In 1746, Princeton University was started. Do you know who the first president of Princeton University was? Jonathan Edwards, a Calvinist. In 1754, Columbia University, an Ivy League school. You know who started that? The Church of England. The University of Pennsylvania. You know who started that? The Church of England and Methodists. In 1764, Brown University. You know who started that? Baptists. Baptists. Dartmouth College in 1769. You know who started that? Calvinists. Now, the, late, the, the, the last one, 1865, a little bit late, Cornell University. Christians did not start that, but I'll tell you what, they need to be in this list because I'm going to tell you something about them. The New York Post ran this story. They said that the incoming classes at all these universities had an overwhelming increase of LGBTQ people in them. Brown University, 38% of their incoming class identified as LGBTQ+. Princeton, 35% of their incoming class. Yale, 29%. Harvard, 28.9%. Cornell, 21.4%. University of Pennsylvania, 15%. These institutions were started in this country for the glory of God preparing men to preach the gospel. What we have here is an onslaught of the world killing the witness. It's just what it is. I'm not asking you to hate these people. I'm not asking you to rise up against them. I'm not asking you to do anything bad to these people. I just want you to be encouraged that no matter what happens to the church, God has not left us. There is going to come a time when God will breathe life back into our bodies, back into his people, back into the church. And if it be at the very end time, we will be lifted out of our graves, literally. But until then, we have his strength, we have his hope. There's only two cities in this world, the great city and the holy city. I want to read this to you as, far as, as part of this very first uh, practical application. Romans 8.31 what shall we say to these things that I just said? Wasn't it so discouraging? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, the, the, down, the downgrade, the horrible things that are being done. No. 
What shall I say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? It doesn't matter if all the universities in the world were raging against God. If all the governments in the world are raging against God. Isaiah tells us that the scales, the nations, are like dust against God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, shall famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? None of those things. I have one more practical application. I mentioned it last week, but I want to expand upon it this week a little bit. It has to do with a lesson of hope. A lesson of hope from Zechariah chapter 4. And Art mentioned it this morning. Despising the small things. Despising the small things. In Zechariah 4 chapter, chapter 4 verse 10 we read this. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. Now let me give you the background of that. Zerubbabel was given the go-ahead to build the temple. And Zechariah is describing the plans and what is happening uh, to that location in Jerusalem where they were being rebuilt. And it seems that some are coming back. They remember the good old days. Not very many. It was a whole generation ago. But the beginnings were kind of disappointing. The wall was a little bit small. The temple itself, not as grand, not as great. And they were quite disappointed. They were despising a little bit the small things because they have a very meager beginning. Now I want you to look around and look at the meager beginnings you see here. I want you to see the smallness, the weakness. We're not great fancy people here. I'm not a celebrity pastor or the son of a celebrity pastor. None of us are. I mean, if you, if you look, I'm not as good looking as Kenneth Copeland, I guarantee it. I'm not going to get his following. Gary doesn't have, you know, hair like Benny Hinn. You know, he's not going to get any rewards for his looks. Art's not going to be dressing like Joel Osteen. He just doesn't have the money. None of us are like that. We have a very meager beginning here. We have the smallness. It is so encouraging to read the scripture that says, where two or three are gathered. You know why the Lord said that? For people like us. He says it to us. Where two or three are gathered, He is in the midst of us. He is in the midst of us. We have been given the authority to go and to be witnesses for God. And that is what we should do. And this is the promise that I'm giving you. This is the one thing that I say, I know this for sure. This is not my opinion. This is what the scripture says. Philippians 1, 6, And I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you, uh, in you will bring it to a completion at the day of Jesus Christ. At the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to breathe life back into his church that has been killed, and they will be raised to their feet. Now, if it's not on that very last day, if it's from generation to generation, God will revive his church at his will when it pleases him. Because when he revives his church, it is nothing more than a dress rehearsal for that late great last day. That great last day. A dress rehearsal. And I hope that a revival begins here. I hope that a revival is here. If it's not going to be today that we will rise up out of the graves and meet God in the sky and the judgment begins, if it's not that day, then I believe that he will rise us up with the power of his spirit. The power of spirit. 
In conclusion, this, the church is the witness of God and Christ in this present evil world. And that is our lot. And it sounds like, oh, that's our lot in life. No, no, that is our inheritance, isn't it? That is our privilege. That is the things that we love. Let us do our best to keep our light burning bright with the oil of the Holy Spirit, that the truth of the gospel might be provided to a dead and dying world that live in darkness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we now thank you for the truth. Thank you for the light of the gospel, for the oil of your spirit living among us. We thank you that you have given us the truth to preach. And we pray, Lord, that we might love this world even though it hates us, that we might preach to the world even though they want to shut us up, that we might be, have compassion and be kind and pray for our enemies, that we might embrace them because, Father, we were darkness at one time. They are us. And, Father, you have loved us when we were yet sinners and died for us. May we love them the way you love us. Give us this grace, Father, to be kind, to be willing, to die for our friends the way you died for us. So give us this grace. Bless your people with your presence. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.